So, okay, I think um, we'll begin. And um, first, I just want to uh, congratulate everyone completing our first day of practice. And um, it, it is um, something special the, that we get a chance to sit with ourselves. And I know that uh, at times it's not easy. It's, uh, actually, I was very touched uh, when Sally mentioned that uh, being here at times is not going to be comfortable, and you probably already have begun to experience that. Not that it will always be uncomfortable. There will be other moments as well. I'd like to maybe just uh, read to you a poem from Hafiz that I'm very fond of. He's a Persian poet very wise, and he speaks about, um, it's called actually for three days. So he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone by yourself in a closet for three days. That would do. That means not leaving, and you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches, and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh. No writing poems, that would be cheating. This sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But, dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside. Sometimes we refer to the first few days of a retreat of kind of like being in a swamp. Whether it's your first or your 50th retreat, um, there can be a swamp-like feeling, the sense of tiredness, as someone already mentioned in the questions, and maybe filled with wanting or not wanting or confused. So I just want to normalize that um, the challenges that come up in the first few days of practice are very, very normal. Bhante Gunaratana, a Buddhist monk, he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy and that your mind is shrieking madhouse down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless, no problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just haven't noticed. So again, I just want to, normal, uh, to acknowledge and, and normalize the challenges that come up because we're not used to sitting for so many hours on end and paying attention on purpose to the body, the breath, our hearts. Mandi Gunarachana says it takes gumption I love that word, gumption. It takes like guts. It takes something like to sit with ourselves. John Kabat-Zinn says that meditation is not for the faint of heart. So I can appreciate that as well. The mind at times is wandering, remembering about what happened last Friday, what's going to happen after this retreat, and I'm going to get a cappuccino, and it's going to be like this. Or maybe it's wondering, what the heck am I doing here? All normal, 
involved? No, I'm all. You may have contemplated perhaps if I, if I keep my legs crossed like this, will they fall asleep and will I ever be able to walk? Has anyone ever died of boredom? <laughs> and yet here we are. This clock is ticking. Remember once um, my teacher, Venerable Lindit Seto, on his 80th birthday, I asked him, how, how long has 80 years been? And he looked at me and he snapped his fingers. 80 years. I've now made it to 60. How, how could that be? I was just this little Bobby Stahl. <laughs> now I'm an older Bobby Stahl. Jane Kenyon, she writes in a poem called Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. And I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. So here we are at uh, Spirit Rock, and I trust as many reasons that bring us here. And of course, we spoke a, a few of those last night with this mindfulness of the body practice. And we're staying in a very wonderful place, one of the most beautiful meditation centers around. And yet inside, even though with the pastoral settings, it can be a real cooker inside our own hearts, inside our own bodies and minds. In my younger years, in the 1980s, I lived in a, a Buddhist Theravadan forest monastery for eight and a half years. And um, I spent a little time in Burma, but mostly in Boulder Creek in California, where I, in a group of people, we helped found a, a forest monastery. And, and at one point, after practicing there for so many years, I realized in my own kind of Boston slang language that I was, even though I was living in a monastery, I also felt I was living inside of a shit accelerator because everything was just coming up. Getting annoyed, somebody used my toothpaste, wearing my sandals. You never trust leaving your sandals by a door. You never know who's going to pick them up and leave them over by another door. And so I realized that meditation and this notion of not for the faint of heart, that it can bring up a lot inside us as we sit with ourselves. And it's very important that we acknowledge and perhaps even use what comes up as part of our very practice. We are indeed getting cooked. And I want to just appeal to us to be open to all possibilities. Patrick Overton, he writes, that when I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust that one of two things will happen. That I will find something to stand on or I will be taught to fly.
I step off, when I come to the edge and I step off into the darkness of the unknown and trust one of two things will happen. I'll be taught to fly or I'll find some ground to stand upon. It's important to know in this practice as we grow with deeper wisdom that there will indeed be these challenges and they are so predictable that actually in meditation manuals they are um, spoken about. It's predicted. It's actually found in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The very first teaching is on what's known as the five hindrances, which is actually very comforting to me that within these meditation manuals and texts, um, they speak about the challenges that come up in the practice. And so perhaps today, some of you have been experiencing sense desires, aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, or sleepiness, or doubt. Anybody have any of that? (laughs) Raise your hands. I think a few, including myself. And they're called hindrances, and why? Because they hinder the steadiness of our body and our mind. In the Dharma, they speak about uh, a simile of the pond that when one is filled with uh, sense desires, and let's say there's like a body of water, like a lake, and when it's clear, you can see all the way down to the bottom, but when you're filled with sense desires, as if there's colored layers of dye on the surface so you can't see through. Red colors, red dyes. And if there's aversion, it's like frozen water. You can't see through it. If you're feeling very restless, there's strong winds and waves, so you can't see through the water. If there's sloth and torpor, I love this metaphor, it's like thick algae on top of the surface. (laughs) Or lastly, if you're filled with doubt, it's like the mud gets all stirred up, can't see anything. I think we can relate. I love these metaphors. These hindrances are impediments to our progress. They feed, in many ways, our neurotic and narcissistic tendencies filled with, as the Buddha described, these three great sources of all suffering of greed, hatred, and ignorance. Actually, he really should say it starts with ignorance, and from that ignorance, greed and hatred arise. So this unawareness is, uh, obscures clear seeing. Another mention in the metaphor in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than this craving, this grasping, no ice colder than hatred, no fog thicker than unawareness, ignorance, delusion, not seen clearly. That's why my teacher, Tampu Lucero, he said that midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the forest is dark, but darkest of all is unawareness, is ignorance not seeing clearly. So just a closer, brief look at these hindrances. So sense desire really, and we could really encapsulate it in three words. I want it. Or I want it now. It's that thirst of wanting. We're sitting and meditating, and we're thinking about what's going to be for dinner, what's going to happen later, and just filled with the delight of this wanting. Sometimes if we take a good look at the nature of our mind, we're not that steadied and at ease. The same, of course, uh, with aversion and anger, maybe it's four words, I don't want it, 
I hate it. I don't want it to be the way that it is. It's like frozen, stuck type feeling. Perhaps you experience this today. Restlessness, ants in my pants, pacing tiger, crawling out of my skin, unharnessed energy. And when I was in Germany giving a retreat, the Germans have an expression. It's called, you have bees in your butt. That's what they call it. That's, a, that's like ants in the pants. It's a sense of uh, not being very settled, very uncomfortable. And of course, there's sloth and torpor, sleepiness. And I think, yes, when we come to retreats, we are, for many of us, exhausted. We've lost touch with our own biorhythms or circadian rhythms. There's a sense of not living a balanced life. And so when we finally get to the meditation hall, all the, you know, we, we look at the pillow and we think, I want to sit on it and meditate, but deep down, the desire is, I want to put my head on it. I sometimes think, I don't know if we'll ever pull this off at Spirit Rock or anywhere, but I often think like for like a longer retreat, we should just have beds in the meditation hall for the first, like, first three days. Everybody sleeps 20 hours a day. Then you finally wake up, and then you begin practicing. Sometimes we fall asleep not because we're so busy, but because also we don't want to look at things, that wanting not to feel something. Remember some years ago, there was a friend of mine who had taken a mindfulness course with me, and she was very, very obese. And whenever she did a, a body-oriented meditation, this was a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, as soon as she began with the body scan, bringing awareness to the left foot, she would fall asleep. And this happened every time she practiced, she'd fall asleep. And one day, maybe about a month into the class, she comes up to me and says, I finally listened to the body scan. It was great. And I asked her about it and go, well, what, 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 how did that happen? She goes, then she went and shared with me a very painful story. She goes, you know, I'm, I'm so ashamed of how I am with my weight that I just, I just have to go to sleep. I can't be with it. But then earlier in the week, I was at this woman's gym and I was pounding weights. And all of a sudden, I looked around the gym and I was the strongest woman in that gym. I was pounding more weights than anyone else and I felt my power. I felt my heart. I felt the pain that I've been carrying so much of my life about my body and what it looks like. And I found another part of me that began to heal. Sometimes we go to sleep because we just don't want to see, don't want to feel. Doubt is a very challenging hindrance to arise. It might be feelings like I'm not getting anywhere. I mean, I heard meditation helps, but I don't know if it's helping me. And, and you know, there's a sense of wanting something but not experiencing it not understanding it. Very difficult position to be in. It's very interesting. Um, sometimes we have in our Western world like we're yearning to find utopia. It's very interesting. In Greek, utopia means nowhere. But actually, if you divide that word nowhere, it also spells now, here. So maybe there's something to that. 
common ingredient in working with any of these hindrances, though we can be also very specific, but the most common ingredient in transforming them is mindfulness, which is actually the beginning of the second teaching in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, these factors of awakening that begin with awareness. When this awareness, we can begin to investigate and see what's actually happening here. Oh, this doubt. Oh, this sleepiness. Oh, this wanting or not wanting. Mindfulness is this factor that helps us to see where it is that we are, and in that moment, we can begin to respond to it in a much more constructive way. There's actually a very beautiful quote by Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist and author, and he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space, and in that space lies my freedom to choose. So that moment that we become aware that we're filled with wanting or not wanting, or we're restless, or that we're tired, we're filled with doubt, in that moment of seeing, we can begin to choose to respond to it in a way that potentially we can begin to learn from it. We may speak more about these factors of awakening later, but this sense of awakening is, is awareness that brings investigation and joy and contentment and so forth, ultimately leading towards deeper balance, understanding when things don't go our way, that, that we don't get as ruffled, that we have a wider perspective. The Dharma also speaks about when we're filled with sense desires, perhaps a reflection of impermanence would be very helpful. Filled with aversion, practicing some loving kindness, practicing generosity, experiencing restlessness, perhaps going on a brisk walk, harnessing that energy that is so unharnessed. Sleepiness, opening the eyes, standing up. I mentioned that earlier today about standing up. Perhaps imagining that you're sitting at the edge of a tiger trail or maybe you're sitting at the edge of a cliff that's 10,000 feet down and one false move, over you go. You'll probably stay awake. (laughs) So sometimes these hindrances arise singularly and sometimes they rise uh, together. Sometimes what I like to coin what's called an MHA, which is a multiple hindrance attack. And there's nothing worse than being filled with wanting, not wanting, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt all at the same time. But if that happens to you, ah, here's an MHA, I see you. This is the hindrances coming on full force in the sense of seeing. There's also a very famous story that I won't go into length here, of when the Buddha was on the vigil of awakening and Mara, the celestial uh, tempter, was trying to tempt him and distract him from the practice, tempting him with seduction, tempting him with fear. And every time Mara was, and the name of the celestial being was uh, Mara, the tempter, and every time Mara tried to distract the Buddha, the Buddha just saw Mara and said, I see you, Mara. A very beautiful expression. I see you sense desire. I see you aversion. I see you restlessness. This seeing and knowing begins to set us free. So I want to just name these challenges briefly tonight in some brief ways of working with them and to name them so that this can assist us with our practice. And I actually want to devote some other times for a really kind of a shift into the 32 parts of the body since we're going to be 
getting to do these, that practice uh, tomorrow. And so um, I want to speak about this now. <clears throat> and we've already begun this investigation of the body with the breath and with our postures and bringing our mindfulness to activities, to eating and so forth. And in the first foundation of mindfulness, there's actually six distinct practices. And so we've been working with the first three already, which is the breath, the postures, bringing mindfulness into our activities. And the other three will be practices that we will work with, some more so, some maybe less so. But let me just name those other three practices, which is the 32 parts of the body meditation, and then the meditation on the four primary elements of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. And then this last practice of a, a contemplation on the mindfulness of death. It's actually a very graphic practice of nine different contemplations of what happens to the body on the first day of death until it eventually turns into dust. And um, we won't be going to the cemetery on this <laughs> retreat, but um, often when we sit and practice with ourselves, the, the, our mortality arises, and so we might find ourselves at times being, being with um, that one day it will be otherwise. The Buddha spoke about that you could travel to the far ends of the world and suffering will follow us everywhere we go. The Buddha says in the Samyutta Nikaya that I do not teach that the cessation of the world of suffering could be done without the attainment of Nibbana. Nibbana, freedom, peace. That within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions is the world, its origin, its cessation, its pathway to Nibbana, to freedom. Within this fathom-long body lies our world. And so we'll be diving into this practice of the 32 parts of the body meditation. It's within this body, of course, that we live. It's the vehicle that we live inside of to awaken. We do not live outside of the body, contrary to uh, sometimes our experience. There's a story in the Dubliners written by James Joyce of a character in the book, and his name was Mr. Duffy, and it was said of Mr. Duffy that he happened to live a short distance away from his body. And I think sometimes we can relate to that short distance. And in the 32 parts of the body, we're going to be uh, moving into the body directly. So I'll maybe share with you how I came across this practice. And to be honest... Um, the practice of the 32 parts of the body is, is rarely practiced in the world. In some cases in Asia, very little here in the United States or with Western practitioners. Yet it is found in the first foundation of mindfulness. And actually, my teacher, Tungpu Lucero, this is what he had to say about the 32 parts of the body meditation. He said that this is the most eminent among all of the foundations of mindfulness. The 32 parts of the body is unlike any other kind of meditation, and it is only brought to light and taught in the times when the Buddhas arise. 
So this is a pretty strong statement by one of my most beloved teachers, the this importance of this practice. And I was, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into when I traveled in 1980 to Southeast Asia and I ordained temporarily as a Buddhist monk. When they began to shave my head, I, they were asking me, the monks were all chanting, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, the 32 parts of the body meditation, to be meditating on the body. And what I didn't know is that Tampu Lucero was a, a very... Uh, sincere and long-time practitioner of the 32 parts of the body, and he began to uh, introduce this to me in 1980. And of course, not only did he teach the 32 parts of the body meditation, but also taught just general vipassana and concentration meditation, loving-kindness meditation. It was a very versatile forest monk. But more importantly, he was a person of immense humility and great kindness. You know, when you think about all these years being a monk, he was a monk for like over 60 years or more. And in his day and age, this was very rare for us to, to, to understand or even to, to comprehend this, but he took on this practice of, of a vow to not lie down. And he didn't lie down for the last 50 years of his life. <laughs> he stayed in chairs. It's kind of hard to believe. I, I can't believe I'm even telling you this. But... Um, you know, and why am I telling you this? Not to like tell you how macho of a monk he was, but that these years of practice, you know, like potatoes in a sack and they get rounder and rounder, like those destructive, narcissistic, selfish tendencies through years and years of practice get rubbed and rubbed and rubbed off. And what was the legacy of what I really received from these teachers was immense kindness and humility. That was, of course, with a lot of wisdom and understanding about the Dharma, but it was this legacy of kindness. So, I practice on and off the 32 parts of the body for 26 years. So I'm old enough that I can say that now. <laughs> and during that time, you know, I eventually left the monastery, got married, entered into the advanced practice of having a partner and two children and have to find work after living in a monastery for almost 10 years and what am I going to do in my life? And um, ended up at a stroke center working with people with strokes and Parkinson's and MS, other neurological and orthopedic conditions. And I was hired as a counselor and I could um, also teach some relaxation and I began to teach meditation, mindfulness meditation. And I would hear from people that uh, meditation is very helpful. I remember this old woman saying to me, yeah, this meditation is keeping me out of the nursing home. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, look at me, I'm an old lady. I've got to go pee in the middle of the night and I've got to walk to the toilet and I'm mindful now of lifting, moving and placing while I'm using my walker. And I will get to the toilet without falling down, breaking my hip and end up in a nursing home. So I'd hear these very practical things. And then as time went on, I heard about John Kabat-Zinn and Mindful Space Stress Reduction and got connected with him and began teaching MBSR here in California. And one of the primary practices in MBSR is the body scan. And so I, of course, was teaching MBSR for many years and practicing the body scan, but still playing around with the 32 parts of the body. So finally, in the year 2006, I was introduced in 1980, so 26 years later, I'm 
again, revisiting the 32 parts of the body, because you know, in MBSR it's a very body-oriented mindfulness practice. And I began to reflect on how profound the 32 parts of the body practice was, as if I had wake, woken up. I mean, it took me 26 years to wake up. And um, I just couldn't believe, you know, and also I, I guess I feel in some ways that the body scan of mindfulness-based stress reduction, the great-grandmother or grandfather of the body scan is the 32 parts of the body meditation. This is the original teachings of the Buddha. And then all this appreciation for Tampu Lucero and all his teachings about the 32 parts of the body just flooded over me, and I was just so immensely grateful. So there's a very funny thing, because sometimes something that's so obvious, like have you ever had the thing like, where's your keys? They're in your hand. Where's your glasses? They're in your eye. They're on, they're on your head. You know, like sometimes things that seem so uh, obvious, you can't see them. And so... Here, I wish I had, if we had that projector, I could get it on the screen, but instead, I'll maybe put this on the table in the back. It's a Gary Larson cartoon, and it's a picture, uh, it's a, from the far side, and it's a picture of three cows, and they're in a pasture, and they're eating grass. This is what they're doing, eating grass. Finally, one of them has this deep insight, this deep epiphany, and starts calling out to the other cows, hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. Wait a minute, we're eating grass. Hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. And in the same way, hey, wait a minute, I began to discover I have a body. I have a body. I have a body. Even though I'd had a life-threatening illness 10 years earlier, I still didn't quite get it. I have a body. And to me, the 32 parts of the body is this profound practice of going into the body, it's a really weird practice. We're going to have a good time here. It involves chanting the parts. We're going to start actually tomorrow morning. We'll come here in silence, of course, and we'll, the first 30 minutes of the early morning sit, we'll sit in silence. In the last 15 minutes, we're going to chant these 32 parts five times forward, five times backwards, five times forward and backwards. Part of this practice is as we begin to develop the verbal recitation, it helps to support the mental knowing and helps to support the deepening of the practice. I actually, as far as helping to support the practice, in the back of the room, you probably have seen the anatomical chart. You can actually lift up the sheets and it opens up more into the body. So you can, as we go through the parts, you can take a look at, at, at that. and. Uh, we found out that Spirit Rock has a skeleton, and so we have a nice skeleton sitting over on the corner. And then um, I had a meniscus knee surgery. I actually was awake for that while it happened. I had a spinal and watched him, the, my doctor do the meniscus surgery on my knee on a video camera. He actually took pictures, so I got my, my uh, knee joint up on the table as well as my colonoscopy. You can see inside the large intestine. You can see the polyps. And, and so anyways, they're, they're, they're offered to you. And <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to go see them, it's like, wow, this is like going into the body. And yeah, I actually stayed awake for the colonoscopy. Again, I saw it on the... On the, on the video camera. Then I asked my doctor, can, can you bring the, it up? I want to look at my liver. And he goes, no, no, we're staying in the large intestine. <laughs> I was kind of joking with him. So what are these parts? There's, in the classic 
teachings, there's 32 parts of the body, 20 solids, and 12 liquids. And I'll just recite them to you. So it's head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. That's quite a gathering of parts. And actually, speaking of parts, I bet you didn't know this, that, you know, this is 32, but obviously there's way more than 32, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But just so you know that the body is still an uncharted um, geography, in the year... The last couple of years, in 2013, two new body parts were discovered by scientists. I bet you didn't know that, or maybe you did. So one was that there's a, a new layer of um, the human cornea. It's actually 15 microns thick, which is 0.00059055118 inches. That's small. It's called the Dua's layer. It was discovered by Professor Harminda Dua. But anyways, this is actually a very important discovery because it actually will aid in, in eye surgery and prevent a lot of, uh, of damage. And then secondly, uh, there was actually a new ligament that was found in the knee. You'd think cutting up all these cadavers and knee surgeries, you would have found everything in there, but there's an arteriolateral ligament that in 2013 um, was discovered. I think that's pretty amazing. And of course, speaking of the human body, it's probably more accurate to say that it's a human biome. Because within the body, it's probably about 10% human, and the other 90% are organisms that live in and on the body. This is called living with the many. Actually, in the path of purification, the Vusudhimaga, there's a whole teaching about the living with the many. And many years ago, Tungpulu Seto, whenever he would come to the United States and he would spend the rainy season here, which is about three or four months, he would do these teachings. And so for one particular rainy season, he gave us the teachings of the 81 different families of organisms that live in your body. And... Each night, we would get the teachings on the organism that lived in the eyelids, the one that lived in the nose, the one here, there. And he, it would always end with this poem, poem in Burmese would go, and he'd have us memorize this. Po aim, puza, podo, ikanda godi, tudo, itodan, thinjan, pi'i. What that means is that these organisms, they live in your body, and they eat of the body, and then they defecate and urinate in the body. And then, of course, they copulate and they make offsprings in the body and then they gradually go old and then they die. And thus your body is a cemetery. And then the next night he'd go on to the next group. <laughs> kind of amazing. The body. 32 parts. And so why these 32? And of course, as I've looked in the canonical literature, there's not really anywhere that I found a really good explanation of why these 32 parts and why are they in the order that they're in. My experience informs me that these parts are more like ambassadors 
or doorways into the body. For example, my wife uh, has, uh, is a diabetic and needs to use insulin. And you, you, if you, you look at the list or you heard me recite the, the list of the parts, you don't not hear the pancreas, which is uh, you know, key formation in, in, in insulin production. And so how, what informs me with this practice and my experience working with it is that as we bring our awareness into the abdominal region and we're sensing into the large intestine, small intestine, the stomach, that it will be a doorway into other organs and other parts. And so I would like to just name that, that these parts that we recite are ambassadors or doorways into the the full dimension of the body into the lymph system. You know, there's so many areas that are not mentioned in that 32-part list, but consider that to be a doorway into the body. And whatever is evoked as we're moving, bringing awareness into the abdomen, and if it takes us into the pancreas or wherever, that that is the practice. So I want you to, and we'll go over this again so you understand this. For our history is here inside the body, and as we stay with the body, things get evoked. For example, I remember this one uh, student of mine was meditating on head hair, and what evoked, what came up for her was the memory of stroking her dying grandmother's hair. So our history is here inside our body. As we begin to bring awareness to these parts, it takes us into our lives. It's also interesting, this particular order head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, and so forth. And so, obviously, the first five, when we look around at each other, these are the parts that we see. You see head hair, if you've got any, body hair, nails, fingernails, toenails, um, teeth, and skin. These are the parts that we see. And actually, the cosmetic industry knows about that and knows that we fuss a lot about head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. We fuss incredibly. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Actually, a friend of mine who um, took my class some years ago, she was a former chief financial officer, so she was skilled at an Excel sheet. Maybe I'll also put this on the table, um, or maybe not. <laughs> but, but anyways, um, she actually gave an approximation from her age beginning as a, you know, like when she was like one years old up till she was 67 on just approximately how much money she actually has spent on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And it's put out a spreadsheet. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, you know, like for head hair, like shampoo, conditioners, curly irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments. I mean, how much money have you spent on that stuff? So she came up with about twenty-seven, thirty thousand, maybe about $28,000. Then on body hair, there's razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax, nails, there's nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, teeth, there's toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electronic toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin, there's um, lotion, moisturizer, cleanser, makeup. Um, facials, laser work, skin cancer. So it was well over $100,000. <laughs> we spend a lot on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And when we think of this order, what is the connection between head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin? So again, I said this is the parts that we see. 
And then beneath that, the flesh, or the sinews, the bones, bone marrow, kidneys, the flesh is the, is the muscles, the uh, sinews are all the ligaments and tendons. And flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, that's a big jump between bone, bone marrow, then to kidneys. But then it's very interesting that bone marrow has to do with blood formation and kidneys have to do with blood purification. So there seems to be some type of a sense there. But then you probably heard when I was reciting the list, what is feces doing next to brain? <laughs> Did the Buddha have a sense of humor? Or actually more and more research is, is suggesting and understanding that the digestive system is actually the second brain in, in the human body. So it's very, very interesting. How to practice this meditation. So there's a number of different ways to practice this. Here at Spirit Rock, we're practicing about a week. For the next three days, we'll be working with, with um, two, two groups a day. There's a total of six groups, or four groups of solid parts, and two groups of liquid parts. A traditional way that has been practiced for a long time in the Buddhist tradition is that this practice actually goes for eight months or 165 days. I've actually had the opportunity at Insight Santa Cruz this year, I'll be beginning my ninth year of doing an eight-month practice on the 32 parts of the body. It's actually kind of amazing that people actually show up <laughs> and actually stay throughout it. What appeals to them is I have a good friend of mine that is an anatomy professor at a local college, and so we get to do a field trip halfway through the class to the anatomy labs to really take a look very closely at a human body that has died and been dissected. And so this 165-day practice is practicing with each of these parts. Um, as we recite them tomorrow, you'll get a sense we're, we're going forward with the parts one week head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. The second week doing it reverse, skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. And then the third week doing it forward and backwards, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. Skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. So we're zigzagging through these parts, taking actually eight months to complete them. This time in this week, we'll, we'll go through these in, in a, in a week-long way, which actually I've done here at Spirit Rock. This might be like our eighth time doing this, so the last eight years or so. There is a particular way to practice this meditation. I was speaking about this earlier. It's called the sevenfold skill in learning, and what that means is that we need to, to practice with these parts, saying it verbally, and then knowing it mentally, and then beginning to penetrate into the color, into the shape, the location of where the part is, the direction, meaning is it above or below the waist, and the boundary, what is it bordered by. This 32 parts of the body practice can be used as an insight meditation, and it equally can be used as a practice of developing deep concentration and absorption. I will be introducing this practice as an insight practice as it relates to the elements. And just to pause on that for a moment, that if you looked up the 32 parts of the body in the canonical literature, many of you would find a lot of references to this being what's called an asuba practice, or the practice of the not beautiful. But actually, they actually use much more 
very negative descriptive language of working with the body in this way and perhaps it was originally designed for monastics that were still young and alive and and filled with desire and so there was a negative connotation to help uh, to help to lessen that attachment to the body. So sometimes you will hear very strong language like the loathsome or the repulsive aspects of the body. You might just, even as you hear me say that, go, ooh, get a little cringe. And again, there, there may be times where to help to build that sense of dispassion that could be useful, but it also could be taken to an extreme. And actually in one case, during the Buddha's time, there's a group of monks that practices so uh, rigidly and negatively on the loathsome aspects of the body, they ended up taking their lives. And then the Buddha had to like, hey, wait a minute, this is not about uh, taking care of our, you know, we need to care for our bodies because this is also the vehicle that we awaken into. So also in the text, but not so obviously seen, there's also references of using this practice as it interrelates to the elements that the solid, that these parts are made up of solids, liquids, emotion, and temperature, revealing the impersonal and impermanent nature of things. And the way that I've practiced this is in that realm of its interrelationship with the elements. And as far as we going through the body parts, I have always practiced it in such a way of not giving any negative nor a positive to any of the body parts. And actually what I've done is I've actually looked at a medical dictionaries as well as I have three physician friends that I actually had them very exhaustively look through all of the definitions and functions of all of these parts and make sure that it was medically correct. And so when we do these guided practices, we're just going to, to, to just give you the information on what these parts are. And then it, you as the practitioner, it may bring up, oh, bile, or it might be, wow, bile, that's the thing that actually dissolves the fats. If I didn't have bile, I, I, I wouldn't be able to dissolve any fats. And so, but we're going to just give you the information. It's like when my, um, I don't want to pick on my beloved partner, but I'll just share a story, because, and I think we all can appreciate this, and, and I mean, man and woman, you know, but it, sometimes like you, you come home, You've just got your hair cut, and you come in the house, and it's like, I hate it, right? Has anybody ever had that experience? <laughs> I hate it. So actually, so when my wife comes home, or when I come home, she can say to me, though, actually, my, my hair's falling out at this point, but what is head here? It's thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells protruding from the head. That's what it is. Used for thermal regulation, protection from ultraviolet light, head hair. That's what it really is, but the cosmetic industry, of course, will have us uh, just get allured into what is the nicest looking head here. Thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. This is what it is. So we want to, in this practice, begin to break that spell of enchantment, of enticement. It's not giving necessarily a negative edge to the body, but breaking that spell of that enchantment that has caused so much suffering and perhaps developing another relationship with the body that is wiser and that is more compassionate and more insightful in understanding. So I'll speak just a little bit more and end because we're getting close. And... Um, Within the text here is um, recorded some of the benefits of this practice. I find very uh, wonderful. 
So probably the most important benefit is it's helping us to break free of the erroneous view of self, becoming freer of our own story, the narrative, the conditioned self. The second is that actually this is being used a lot in the early Buddhist tradition as a healing meditation. There's actually an old friend of mine who's now passed away. Her name was Barbara. And she was diagnosed with lung cancer and given under one year to live. And I met her at the monastery. And the monks um, taught her the 32 parts of the body. She particularly worked in the area, the section about the lungs. And she began to feel better. It's hard to say whether it was the 32 parts of the body or not, but she did have one year under to live. And at the, at the, sort of at the date of when the doctor said, you have one year left, Barbara wrote a letter to her doctor uh, with just three words, still here, Barbara. And that went on for five years, which is quite incredible. And unfortunately, after about five years, there was a reoccurrence and she passed on. But she, she herself attributed the 32 parts of the body had something to do with, with this turnaround. And actually, even with, with, the, with her embracing of the Dharma in her heart, this was a, a, a poem that she wrote not so shortly before she died. And it's really remarkable of her just facing her life, facing her death. She calls it of life and death. It's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but I've broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas we celebrate the wonders of birth, and at Easter the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? Without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts. It also speaks about the benefits that one becomes the conqueror of boredom and delight. One becomes the conqueror of fear and dread. One uproots pride and attachment. One can bear the cold and the heat. So we'll see how we do tomorrow afternoon with the heat. One amasses concentration. You will be intelligent. One develops deep, deep concentration in jhana, absorption. One can taste the freedom of nibbana, of deep peace. So I'll just end with a, with a couple of readings. One is from Mary Oliver, and she wrote uh, this poem. It's called The Body. <coughs> so bless the fingers, for they are as darting as fire. Bless the little hairs, of the body, for they are softer than grass. Bless the hips, for their cunning beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when working it has a godly grip. Bless the feet for their knuckles and their modesty. And bless the spine for it, it is the whole story.
So this is, um, I'll end with a, another reading from Tsongkhapa. It's called The Human Body. Perhaps this is why we practice. The human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty, and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your goal, make use of every day and night. The human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest of gems. We'll just sit for a moment, sitting with our rarest of gems, this human body that we can awaken into. So feeling into your own fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions, and here lies our world. May all embodied beings dwell with peace. So thank you very much and do a little bit of some walking practice and then the bell will ring and we'll come back for our last a group set for the evening. Thank you so much.